the Lightly Literary Podcast, the only book club podcast that never drinks the host's alcohol without asking permission first. Come on now. Get some basic manners, folks. Just, that's it's the 101 level. Seriously. Seriously. Don't, Even I, if you have, like, some sort of microaggression against that person, it's just wrong to go into their liquor cabinet. I mean, even letting yourself in, I would say, is, is questionable. I guess if you're <laughs> yeah. with someone who's in need of urgent medical care, that's there's some exceptions to this, <laughs> getting your house broken into, you know, randomly. But, why? Mm-hmm. yeah, why not leave the alcohol alone? You can hash that out later when the host is there. You can talk it exactly. out. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> just, ba- just bad manners, really. If you have mm-hmm. uh, no clue why we're talking about proper host guest etiquette that is because we've stumbled upon a book club episode this is a part two book club on tony morrison's novel called jazz book club episodes are analytical deep dive episodes where we'll be discussing the entirety of that story and spoiling it yada yada so if you're in the wrong place that's okay just check the feed we have a book recommendation up in the feed for this book as well as a part one book club so feel free to go listen to that first if you've not read jazz or don't want to hear us discuss the second half as i mentioned we are the light literary podcast you can find us on instagram and facebook all one word uh, under that title so it's just at the lightly literary podcast again all one word follow us there um, we post updates about what we're reading promotions for the books and just updates about the reading schedule stuff like that so if you want to see some art from the books that i make or some promotions about what we're doing that's where you should go This, as I mentioned, will be an analytical deep dive into jazz, which is a jazz-like complex novel by (laughs) Toni Morrison um, that we've now finished. And so this is, uh, because it's our part two episode, this is the one where we discuss the back half, though at this point, the entire thing is fair game for spoilers, right? Yeah. Oh, yes. Not sure how much we'll be referring back to the first half. But yeah, at this point, we assume if you're coming along for the ride with us, joining us in this discussion, it is because you'd like to hear about the entire book. So yeah, we're not going to hold anything back. Amanda, should we get to the most futile exercise, which is trying to summarize parts of this book? (laughs) Yep. (laughs) <laughs> it's uh, kind of a silly thing, but, you know, given our new format, given that we're trying to go in chronological order, book page order, I think um, we just got to stick with it, right? We got to, even if the book is not necessarily chronological itself. Yeah, we're going to go in order of the chapters. They're not labeled as such. Um, you label this as chapter five. I'm going to stick with your numbers. The chapters in this book, it, they're clearly segmented and broken up into chapters, but they're never numbered, so I'm sticking with Amanda's system here. Yeah, let's dive in and start analyzing this this book. Are you ready? I'm ready. Then let's get to it. Chapter five finds us with a, again, an unnamed narrator who does love to start these chapters with kind of vague contemplations about New York City. In this case, it was some reflections on the effect that the city can have on people in the springtime when the weather starts to turn a little nicer. There's also some observations about Joe and Dorcas. We did agree it was Dorcas, right? Yeah. Unbelievable. I still can't believe that name. (laughs) Joe and Dorcas. Uh, Then we're given a long reflection by Joe, uh, spoken, not narrated directly, oddly enough, but that's consistent, actually. Maybe I only noticed that in the second half, that it quotes him when he, it's like Mm -hmm. he's speaking his thoughts or something. Right. Um, Anyway, indicates it's clearly him. 
Um, and he talks about his affair with Dorcas and what led him to it. Uh, brief thesis statement would be something like he changed too much in his life and his attraction to Dorcas was another one of those metamorphoses, another change into a newer version of himself that, you know, he couldn't resist and was tempted by for various reasons. So he fills us in on some of his life so far, too. You find that um, reason for the affair compelling enough? <laughs> Are you sold? <laughs> uh, nope. <laughs> okay, yeah, fair enough. Uh, his infidelity, I guess, not compelling enough for Amanda. I, jury's out for me, I don't know. I, I'd say no as well, probably. It is worth noting that in his backstory we're given, he has endured many horrors, um, including the, the most notable ones I pulled here, was he clearly had some kind of indentured servitude debts to pay and was being abused as a laborer, like he yeah, went into some really shady business dealings. Post-slavery, obviously growing up as a black man and being, you know, like trying to find work and labor at that time, there's some American history stuff in that for sure. Um, Also, later, he's caught up in a riot. I believe it was a race riot, but it was hard to say. I just assumed because of the random violence done against him that it must have been related to that. And he was um, kind of beaten and almost killed in the race riot, too. So we learn more about Joe and kind of the things he's endured. The chapter concludes with Joe, again, explaining pretty coherently what the affair meant to him, how he feels about Dorcas, how his love for her grew. So it does. I think it's probably one of the most cogent chapters from Joe's point of view. Let's talk about Bible allusions. Can I start there? Yes. (laughs) Uh, Rather prescient of me to note this, because I did not know it would matter so much by the end of the book. It matters uh, extremely a lot by the end of the story, (laughs) which I won't spoil yet. I guess we'll take it one at a time. But when he is attempting to discuss what happened between him and Dorcas and why they had this affair... He talks about, this is what he says, uh, he's talking to her, this is what he says to her. I told you again that you were the reason Adam ate the apple and its core, that when he left Eden, he left a rich man. Not only did he have Eve, but he had the taste of the first apple in the world in his mouth for the rest of his life. The very first to know what it was like to bite down, bite it down, hear the crunch and let the red peeling break his heart. You looked at me then like you knew me and I thought it was really Eden and I couldn't take your eyes in because it was... Oh, sorry, because I was loving the hoof marks on your cheeks. She has a kind of birthmarks. And there's some other thoughts there. Um, hmm. Kind of a sexual way of describing it, right? <laughs> a little Very, bit of a little yeah. crunchy, as it were. I, I don't think crunch is normally the sound associated the most with sex, but that's okay. I think it still reads pretty sexually. There's the enticing red color, and obviously this idea of biting, being the first one to bite. It's, mm-hmm. yeah, kind of intense. Um... Can we discuss this now, I guess, without spoiling the ending? I don't even know if it's possible. <laughs> I, yeah, I think so. E- okay. Even if we spoiled the ending, it's... Meh. Well, it's, we're going to spoil it eventually. We'll get to so it anyway. Yeah, I yeah. was going to say it's coming up anyway. But this was... It's interesting, too. Not a particularly r- religious book. The characters aren't especially religious, except for... There was the one woman in the first half, the mother of, of Dorcas, right? Or the aunt, the aunt, caretaker. Um, Alice. Yeah, she's clearly religious and resents some of the music and the jazz and the energy of it all, the the sexual energy of it all. But other than that, we don't get a lot of religion. So this was a pretty interesting and fitting choice. If you're going to go temptation and lust from the Bible, this is, um, some would say, the inciting incident of that book. (laughs) Mm -hmm. How do you read this? Yeah, I I, I was like, oh, this is... 
that when you said um, in the notes that it was Bible illusions, I was like, oh man, were there any Bible illusions? And then when you talked about Eden, I was like, I did pick up on that. I just completely forgot about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was it was really sexual in nature, which um, I don't know. I I have not studied the Bible extensively, and I stopped going to Sunday school um, after fifth grade, so I'm not overly confident in my analysis of the Bible. Um, but from what I remember of like learning about it and stuff, it was not like the the um, the eating of the apple did not have a, um, a sexual reading in the Bible itself, right? It was just the knowledge, right? It's supposed to be just knowledge. It That's the, yeah, I'm sure it can be read sexually and you could probably do some kind of exegesis in that regard. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, they literally go from being nude to being shamed. So it's like, mm-hmm. there's definite things about sex <laughs> and human connection in that regard. But no, yeah. metaphorically, it's he is told... He's told the metaphor directly, which is that the apple represents knowledge, or it's like, yeah, that's pretty explicitly about knowledge, and as it turns out, some of that knowledge includes, like, sexual shame and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that it was, um, the description that Toni Morrison gives there, I think that it was, it was great. Yeah, it's pretty striking. It is. It's it's concise, but it is something that you can definitely feel the sexual energy from that without it being, like, gross or... I don't want to say gross, but just, like, over overdone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, on the next page, or following maybe two, he clarifies it by saying, um, Dorcas girl, your first time in mine, I chose you. Nobody gave you to me. Nobody said that's the one for you. I picked you out. Wrong time, yep, and doing wrong by my wife. But the picking out, the choosing, don't ever think I fell for you or fell over you. I didn't fall into love. I rose in it. I saw you and made up my mind, my mind, and I made up my mind to follow you too. That's something I know how to do from way back. So... A beautiful couple twists in contrast and kind of turns a phrase that he gets to in there. He speaks certainly with a lot of clarity and wisdom. He might be the, you know, he's the most compromised character in this book, but also gets some of the most cogent reflection time or something. He's mm-hmm. like, has the clearest vision, whether or not it's morally compromised is a different thing, but he definitely has the clearest sense of what he was doing and why, you know? Yeah. And it, it's For beautiful sure. in its own way. It's obviously also, again, like morally pretty objectively reprehensible. But yeah, it's, he's got a quite a poetic way of phrasing it. Uh, so thank Morrison for that one, I guess. But it, it yeah, I, I enjoyed this moment just because I don't again, I don't know if it justifies anything. Of course, it, it words are hardly enough to justify those kinds of deeds. But it definitely is well written. Um, yeah, the rise up in love line is is pretty well said. And he also has a kind of quicker clip with his speaking too, which I think maybe adds to that wisdom feeling, um, especially mm-hmm. since the narrator in this, the unnamed one, can be so long-winded and digressive and just kind of rambling almost that to yeah. get his thoughts presented in this way, it just felt so clear. And I appreciated that we had clear character stuff to latch onto <laughs> in a book that can otherwise become kind of, I don't know, unfocused. Yeah. The, the part that I like too about uh, the quote that you just read is that it, it definitely ties back to the way that he met Violet and the relationship. Yeah, it's, it's a direct contrast. So if we think of the way that he met 
Violet. He could have been, I suppose, the apple in that situation where he falls out of the tree. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, literally. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and then Violet is the one to pick him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then, but in this case, which which in the in the original story, right, um, with Eden, and she ate the apple first, right? So, but in in the mm-hmm. case of Dorcas, he's the one who yeah. did it first. So. Well, it's, a, it's it is a bit of a mixed metaphor. I'm sure he's not presented as an omniscient person or, you know, so I'm sure right. he, it's mixed on purpose. But it's interesting because in the Bible, it's not about choice. You choose the knowledge, of course. There is a clear, but it's not about choice of partner. It's not about romantic mm-hmm. choice being like, there's a hundred people in the garden and, oh, you just pay, like, there's only two humans. Yeah. He'd only got it only <laughs> yeah. created two people. So it's yeah. not exactly, if you're if you're trying to present to your loved one a metaphor of potency about how you chose them and they're the right one for you it's just not the best one to do it with it that's just not what that story yeah. is about <laughs> so yeah, yeah. it's it is kind of i think he is cogent as he is kind of fault it almost falters in a funny way there too which feels appropriate he's mm-hmm. i think very clearly knows what he's doing but also yeah has these moments of i don't know confusion or something yeah well he's getting older too mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um I picked up on we we talked about in the last um episode how like the, really the only reference to jazz was about like Alice's hatred of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. But on page 119 I noticed that there's like some lyrics almost that would fit with um a jazz song. So mm-hmm. I was like, well, well this is something that we definitely should discuss just because like i mean the book is supposed to be framed around the idea of the structure of jazz and the um so it's it's actually like it begins the scene begins with um like a drum beat and then a, a guitar and then it goes to the lyrics themselves blues man black and blues man black therefore blue man everybody knows your name where did she go and why man so lonesome i could die man everybody knows your name um, so mm-hmm. that would be the lyrics, and then it goes on to um, how Joe would think that that song is about him. Um, I thought it was interesting that there's actually the the repetition of everybody knows your name. Mm-hmm. It's just the infamy of it, and the uh, black therefore blue man. That makes sense, of course. Mm-hmm. Where did she go and what? Yeah, so it's it's about loss and stuff like that. I just thought it was interesting that. This is like I think the only place where we see anything that's like lyrics yeah. in the entire novel. Yeah, there aren't many other moments of that kind of explicit poetry, if you want to put it that way. It's just yeah. funny because I don't associate jazz with lyrics at all. <laughs> I, oh, when you I think just, of jazz, you're, you're thinking elevator uh, jazz music. <laughs> sure, yeah. I mean, I've listened to enough of uh, John Coltrane back in my like. I would listen to a lot more jazz days, and I don't think there's many. Mm. I mean, sometimes they have like a refrain, I guess, or some kind of like repeated thing. It's just not yeah. music I associate with lyrics. I guess it's not that it doesn't exist, of course, but I yeah, yeah just does not come to mind. Yeah, I yeah, I guess I I've listened to more of the uh jazz sing jazz music with singers mm-hmm. in it. I mean, yeah, um, there's famous jazz singers too, not that I can name any. I, again, my knowledge of jazz just as a whole is is pretty low, I would say. I I dabbled for a bit and like have enjoyed some live jazz, but um 
Yeah, thematically, you're right, though. It is interesting. The black and blue mm-hmm. man idea relates, I think, in a couple ways to these characters, too. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I just thought that it was interesting that we finally get some more jazz in the in a book named Jazz. Yeah, yeah. There's, I think, <laughs> one more reference to music I'll probably, we'll probably chat about later, but that's definitely true. Yeah. Aside from, like... Um, references to records these that's girls what i was thinking records. of later yeah that's what i was thinking yeah, of yeah 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 that was that was all i had for that so um next chapter uh this chapter follows the story of true bell violet's grandmother and golden gray mm-hmm. who is the son of true bell's mistress um and a slave uh, Vera Louise is the mistress, and she has an affair with a slave and is kicked out once her parents find out. She leaves for Baltimore, taking Truebell with her. Truebell agrees to go, even though she's leaving behind her husband and two small daughters, because when will she have the chance to see a city otherwise? Mm. Um, Golden Gray is raised by both women to be rather spoiled and kind of a dandy. And Vera Louise doesn't talk about his parentage, but Truebell lets him know, and he's decides to go look for his father Henry Lestroy I think it's Lestroy right or yeah that's good close enough for me anyway sure yeah Yeah, the name is never really it's like sometimes he calls him Lestroy sometimes he calls him Lestory Uh, anyway on the way there he encounters a naked pregnant black lady who knocks herself out by running into a tree because she's trying to hide from him he reluctantly brings her along and finds Henry's cabin but Henry is not at home. Right. Yeah, um, this is when the book, I think, lost me for the first time, for sure. Just too many generations back, just too many characters removed. It, I, I felt really jolted at this time. Because I, I was, at that point, actually had a pretty clear reading, I think, and a pretty clear understanding of the setting, the characters. What's like? I wanted to know more about that stuff. To be ripped so far back, I was like, I don't... I think I had to reread this section, like, three times. Because <laughs> I was just like, I don't know who these people are. They're, some of the character work is interesting, but I just... Did, I, it was felt like hitting reset in such an unnecessary manner. But did you find something worthwhile in it? Well, um, I remembered Truebell because that was Violet's grandmother, but mm-hmm. I also remembered when when it talked about she, um, the first mention of Golden Gray in this chapter, I was like, oh, I remember in the chapter where we first meet Truebell that she had, there was a golden boy that right, she loved right. dearly. And I was like, okay, so that's the connection there. Um but what really threw me for a loop in this chapter was the three times, really it was three times, the retelling of the same scene in three with three different, like, voices almost. Like, mm-hmm. we get, um, which is the, we're, we're told that he take, picks up the, the lady, puts her into the carriage, um, and gets to the house and he the first version is is that he like leaves her in the carriage while he goes into the house and kind of like settles himself first and then he remembers her but then we get a second version where he like immediately brings her in and then there's a third version which is where he's like more heroic so that he could tell his dad which is like the golden gray's version of it i guess where he's Mm -hmm. like more heroic in it so i was just like what are these three (laughs) three different narratives about the same scene 
why why is that necessary? Is it just a just something that's well, it, like a commentary on perspective? I think so, because, I mean, if we were doing the actual, you know, filing our undergrad papers, by the end of this book, it's clear that's what you'd have to write about, just because right. the narrative stuff is so jumpy and strange and, like, even ends kind of ambiguously. So, yeah, it's mm-hmm. probably the right answer. I just think... I don't know if Golden Gray was a well-realized portion of this book, and to have it be the most... I think it was probably the most explicitly dealing with race issues in America kind of way to have him come in the middle like he did and not, I I feel like have much development. I mean, there's a lot of stuff with the clothing and his class status versus his race. And there's the one pretty heated conversation I'll get to in the next chapter with his father. But it just, it all just felt a little too daring to me. Like it was not paying off what it was setting up, which when you're jumping around like she is so much, trying different connections, trying different, uh, yeah, point of view establishments, as you mentioned. I don't know. It just didn't connect. I felt very confused. And I think maybe that it could be that I just wasn't willing to do the amount of kind of mental work to keep up with it. That could be part of it, to be honest. It could just be that my my willingness to, to mentally analyze it all and sort it all just kind of faltered here. I just maybe wasn't wasn't willing to meet it where it was. Yeah, and the 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 other thing that I noticed about the three perspectives is that in the second perspective, the narrator, the unnamed narrator, is like, this is how I want to envision it went down, or how I'd like to envision it went down. So I'm like, okay, so it's somebody who's invested in Golden Gray's um, perception, or her perception, or his perception of Golden Gray. So I'm like, okay, so that's another clue to who this could possibly be as a narrator, but honestly, I'm, I still was like, I don't know 100% who the narrator mm-hmm. is. Yeah, yeah. It's It still is worthwhile... The language of this is still worthwhile. Like she still writes with incredible care and has great touches and stuff. I think yeah. this is more structural for me, because there's still moments like when the the then I think it's the father, the colonel, I think becomes enraged about the pregnancy. And this section reads on 141. Then his rage seeped into the room, clouding the crystal and softening the starched tablecloth. Realizing the terrible thing that had happened to his daughter made him sweat, for there were seven mulatto children on his land. Sweat poured from his temples and collected under his chin, soaked his armpits in the back of his shirt as his rage swamped and flooded the room. The ivy on the table had perked up and the silver was slippery to the hand by the time he mopped his brow and gathered himself to do an appropriate thing, slapped Vera Louise into the serving table. And then there's some reactions from that. So it ends with this, you know, horrible violence. But yeah, it's he's he's literally dripping sweat. Then the atmosphere is getting dripping with rage, and it's all very mixed up and hot and confusing. And I, yeah, I just think it's it shows her. You know, she's got this very deft literary mind. But I just mm-hmm. in service of something that just really confused me at this point in the book. <laughs> I was just I think yeah. too coming off of. Again, I think I it just hit me at the wrong time, this this flashback, longer flashback chapter, because I had just gotten fully connected with, with Joe, well, our main players in the story, right? Our Dorcas, our right. Joe, our... Like, so I was just like, I'm ready to explore these connections, learn a lot, and then all of a sudden it's like, no, you're getting yanked back two generations. I just couldn't... I, I don't know. Yeah, it just did not work for me in this moment. Yeah. 
It's it, it, a lot of the the chapter, the way that the chapters progress. It's like pretty jarring at times, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Any thoughts on this section that we missed? I, I don't think so. On to chapter seven, then. But at this point, chapter seven continues in that time period. So this chapter read much more clearly to me. So, but then again, I still have questions. I'll bring up. We follow Henry Lestroy again. Uh, he is Hunter's Hunter, right? That's like his other name. Yeah, that's okay. that's what I assumed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it it kind of references them the same. It re- returns home to find his estranged and unknown to him son with Henry and the wild woman, which is what they call her. He and Golden Gray have a brief, tense argument about their relationship, what it should be, what do they owe to each other, what is their father son bond going to be about. Um, that concludes with some harsh advice from Henry about how to live as a black man in America. So it's clear that Golden's racial identity is a source of conflict. We see him have some kind of symbolic moments of confusion with trying to help the woman versus kind of take care of his nice clothing, you know, and his like he doesn't want to ruin all of his good stuff so there's some class and race issues at the forefront of this too Um, the chapter then switches point of views and this is where I think either I misread this book horribly or I understood Uh, it makes it clear then that the wild woman was Joe's mother right? Yes. Okay. Or that That Hunter's Hunter believed that it was Joe's mother. Well, yeah, because otherwise, where would Joe have come from? Like, they must have... uh, And she gave birth right there. She was pregnant like she... Right? Or no? I mean, not in that scene. We don't see her give birth. But that's... Like, he knew her think, enough yeah, to make that connection. Yeah, we do actually kind of see her give birth. I at, thought we did. Yeah, and I, yeah. yeah, I knew that they called for some women to come to the to the cabin or something. I This is, again, this whole flashback was kind of losing me and jump, being a little too jumpy. But I was pretty clear on my rereading that I thought, oh, okay, that's why Joe and his friend. Another blinking, you'll miss it. Like, all of a sudden, this Victory person's in the story. There's only, like, a half sentence where it's mentioned that Victory is Joe's good friend, like a brother. Like, if you miss that half line it just assumes you know victory like an old chum and it like it just keeps moving. so i definitely hit a paragraph later where i was like victory what like is this a location is this a person <laughs> and i so i had to reread again i was like oh okay there's there's the half sentence line about his best friend victory anyway they wander virginia they're they're growing up together being best friends and they uh, in the meantime know of the wild woman's legend they look for signs for her they try and find her a lot of passages describing what the wild woman's doing she lives out in the sugarcane fields she yeah is is living alone and out there un, unkempt uncared for and then also yeah joe and victory have some friendship moments um in the moments leading up to Dorcas's killing, in the, in the present, by the way, uh, Joe wanders into a city park. That is, it was a park, right? That it couldn't. Also, was that in the present <sighs> tense? No, that was in the past tense. Okay, he finds. I think it's in the past tense. He finds where the wild woman lives. He thinks. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so that was that's where I got confused. It was not in the present tense. It was in the past, and he does discover a seeming shelter where she inhabits or she seems to be living, but never finds her. He just kind of has these impressions of what her life must be. Does that sound right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was like inside of a cave that he yes. had to like shimmy through, right? And like inside, it was like actually very homey like yeah, he kind of makes himself at home pans. there seems yeah. to be some yearning or wondering like why he couldn't have been a part of this you know that kind of why and there was he, also yeah. like silk the the clothes in there it was golden gray's clothes right like yes we were meant Co- to infer that that yeah yes that connection i also made that Which actually makes weird. a ton of sense why it wouldn't be <laughs> in the present i think just his name being invoked at that point I, something about the timeline threw me for a second 
Yeah, a confusing section. Uh, where should we start? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, what a... <clears throat> those two chapters were very strange. Um, <laughs> yeah. But um, this one I thought was interesting, too, because um, if you remember with um, when Joe was the first time that we get Joe's voice when he's kind of interacting with Dorcas, and he's he's trying to find his mother in Dorcas, right? He's You're like, right. Yeah. If, if only she would just reach out her hand out of the bush and stuff like that. And we were like, what does that mean? Um, but I thought it was interesting that Wild, um, his mother, is is depicted as being like very natural. She's very connected to nature. The birds that are around her that can, um, that like enjoy her presence. Uh, she lives in this like, really cozy cave she can like make herself disappear in fields (laughs) yeah and she's not at all touched by civilization and when we compare that to violet and dorcas where violet also was like this country girl and then she becomes more like in the city but she loses touch with herself Mm -hmm. and then dorcas is the epitome of being like a city girl especially later when we see um how she develops as a person with and after joe i thought that it was interesting that he looks for his mother or at least a, a, a kind of like mothering relationship um, with Dorcas, who is the complete opposite of what he knows or, you know, perceives of his mother anyway. Yeah, there must have been some quiet moments of care because the stuff we get about them is just he was pampering her. He was caring right. for her. He was acting the part of kind of a caretaker for her. And that right. it was not, yeah. And Violet definitely, I mean, early in the book, it, to my recollection in part one, it, one of the reasons he gives for leaving Violet is this, that they didn't, they had no intimacies left, not even sexual, just like emotional intimacies left either. It was just kind of, she cared for her birds and they didn't really talk. And so it was, that was part of what drove him to it in his telling. Here's what he, here's her reputation. I think this quote's worth breaking down, kind of putting some analysis into, um, it says, well, I'm just going to read the whole setup. It says, whispering into hibiscus stalks and listening to breathing, Joe suddenly saw himself pawing around in the dirt for a not just crazy, but also dirty woman who happened to be his secret mother that Hunter once knew, who had, but who had orphaned her baby rather than nurse him or coddle him or stay in the house with him. A woman who frightened children, made men sharpen knives, for whom brides left out food, might as well, otherwise she stole it, leaving traces of her sloven, unhoused, broken self all over the county. And shaming him and on and on. So quite a list there, because in terms of Joe's character, how do you read these things? Uh, a woman who frightened children. You see that show, uh, show up in Joe's character at all? He's kind of a smooth talker. He's really good with he children. Had, yeah, but he doesn't have any, critically. He doesn't have any, but he's very caring towards them. He's um, the reason that kids and parents love him. Um, I remember this distinctly, is that mm-hmm. he... he cleans up their toys yes and yeah. leaves them in places for them that they can find easily <laughs> yeah there's a scene again in the first half where i think it's commented this is a paraphrase for sure but it's something like he looks at them with curiosity but not judgment and seems genuinely intrigued or something to that yeah. extent kind of like he yeah he approaches them with genuine engagement and doesn't judge mm-hmm. so there's that the next one made men sharpen knives so, Joe obviously does a murder, so he has the capacity for violence. 
but it's he almost seems to want to live more passively or something so it's I don't know if that had an influence on him, that reputation of his mother. Yeah, I don't know. He's not exactly frightening, right? People don't seem to be afraid of him or intimidated by him. Yeah, men like him because he doesn't, like, hit on their women, and the women like him because they think that he's just, like, a sweet, thoughtful person who's not going to try to hit on them. (laughs) And then, of course, the last one, for whom brides left out food, might as well, otherwise she stole it. So... I mean, Joe in this story obviously takes one thing for himself, which is the affair, and right. that ends horribly. Uh, and then by, maybe by the conclusion, there seems to be other notions of, I don't know, it's, we'll get to the end when we get to it. it. I just thought it was an intriguing little summation of kind of what she was representing to him and what their connection must have meant to him, how he was raised, how he grew up under the shadow of those couple of things. I just mm-hmm. don't know if it seemed to affect him terribly much or what he would have, you know, what he was seeking, what it represents about him. Um but it is interesting because Morrison does love to go with backstories and explore things from the past that come up in the present. <laughs> History, yeah. never never so far behind us, never so far in the past. The past is hardly past. It's a cliche quote at this point. But yeah, I of all the quotes, I just thought I'd pick at that one for a second. What? I had one other thing from this section. It's brief, though. Talk about a transition. This is why I was probably so baffled. There's this huge reflection about his mom, her unknown parentage, all that. And then later, um, right in the middle of 180, 180, um, like whether a particular tree, the one whose roots grew up its trunk, was in bud two days ago or a week ago or exactly where it was. And then a little paragraph break. Joe is wondering about all this on an icy day in January. (laughs) He is a long way from... So I think this is why I got so baffled. Like... It says he stalks through the city and does not object or intervene. And then later, there's the stuff about the finding the packages. Like, I it, it just is so messy at this point. That's why I think I thought transitions like that. Firstly, okay, so he's he's thinking through the 20 pages of reflection you just put in. Like, that's what we're meant to believe. Like, that whole narrative backstory was dumped into his brain with one transition. It just feels very, that's very clunky to me. I'm just kind of like, why are we, why does it have to be explicitly tied in? And then, of course, it jumps around more. I'm not going to read all those quotes. But I think that's why I got so confused about, like, okay, so is he finding this little haven, this little lived-in hole um, cave home like in the present tense because it is in the present tense for a little bit <laughs> it just yeah you have to be diligent when reading this book I guess I underestimated yeah. it at times I think I think I wanted to get into a different kind of reading rhythm with this book and, and then every time I tried it rejected me is <laughs> part of what it was <laughs> yep that's how I get to the end of that chapter and think like, so is he in Central Park and he just found a cave home? <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, a little hobbit hole that yeah, he found. <laughs> yeah, very strange. Um, so then we'll move on, I guess, to the next chapter. Mm-hmm. The chapter starts with Joe finding a party in which Dorcas is dancing with another younger man named Acton name very close to the word action indeed um, <laughs> 
He's apparently quite a ladies' man and the complete opposite of Joe. Uh, we also get a flashback of Dorcas trying to end things with Joe, though she does it poorly because she can't express to him the reasons why she's trying to break it off with him. Mm-hmm. She wants to be able to share the secret of her trysts with others, but she can't with Joe because he's old and married. So there's a bit of shame associated with that. Um, she also likes that Acton is more controlling and demanding, especially of her looks, which she calls personality. Yeah, she's like she has uh, to try and she likes that or something. Yeah. And and it's telling that she calls his obsession with her looks and his looks personality. Mm-hmm. Um, Joe finds her, shoots her, and kills her, to the annoyance of both Acton and the host. Yeah, yeah, very, a little bit very of a, loving relationship. There. We'll, we'll return to that <laughs> scene as it turns out later. I really didn't think we would. I didn't think we'd get further clarity about what happened. Um, mm-hmm. If you can call the thing from later clarity, maybe it's lies, you know, <laughs> or mis- <laughs> you know, misperceptions. But yeah, I again loved coming back to this because I understand this narrative well. <laughs> so it was yeah. like this deepened things I was curious about, especially since we finally get Dorcas' side of things. It's the only time, right? Yes, Isn't unless the only... she's the yeah. narrator. Yeah, we'll get there. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think so, but maybe. <laughs> uh, you're you'll have to do the heavy lifting on that read. I think their exchange too. It is pretty telling, too, you know, because... Why do you want to break up with me? Because. And I said, because, because, because. He said, because what? I said, because you make me sick. Sick? I make you sick? Sick of myself and sick of you. Then he says, or she thinks... I didn't mean that part about being sick. He didn't make me sick, I mean. What I wanted to let him know was that I had this chance to have acting, and I wanted it, and I wanted girlfriends to talk about it, about where we went and what we did, about things, about stuff. What good are secrets if you can't talk to anybody about them? I sort of hinted about Joe and me to Fleece, and she laughed before she stared at me and then frowned. So, yeah, it's, it's a reputation thing. She has, like, I think you pointed out, the most kind of symbolic presence of a city, a person in the city's thinking. It's it's social, it's outgoing, it's status, it's the things that in the country don't seem to matter quite as much, though, you know, small town America will surprise you <laughs> with its yeah. interwoven social webs and whatnot. But it's definitely the most kind of, not even superficial in the bad sense, but superficial in the kind of appearance, putting on appearances sense. And mm-hmm. yeah, it was, I mean, I don't think she comes across as shallow. They they have some interesting exchanges in her thoughts with Acton or, again, I, it's pretty easy to judge and say, like, that seems like a toxic relationship, which it seems like it was. <laughs> but I, then again, it's articulated clearly, and I think she's kind of an interesting character. We just don't get long with her, but... Yeah, she, I, I wouldn't say that she's shallow. If if anything, it's, you know, I mean, she's young, right? <laughs> yeah, it's more of that. It's more of that. Yeah, yeah, it's more that she's young. She's um, She's trying to articulate herself in a, in a manner that you know somebody these two guys who are both older than her um can understand but you know she's inexperienced this is like her first time like openly dating somebody so mm-hmm. i think she's 17 yeah. too or 18 right yeah she's like 18 when she dies so I think yeah. 18 or 19 yeah yeah so it's it is totally just at different points dating and romance have different functions in in people's lives they don't always coincide with age but a lot of the times they do so yeah seeing her point of view was i guess yeah it wasn't the most 
it doesn't have the most depth or anything to it, but just because it was part of the core narrative that I was, I was kind of like riding with comprehending, it just felt like such a breather. And I was like, okay, I, this is helpful for me. I'm intrigued their connection. I understand her kind of confusion now and the dilemma she's in all that stuff. So I I think coming out of the flashback heavy stuff with some time jumps, uh, I just was, uh, this just made a lot of sense to me. And I was like, okay, (laughs) I think I, a lot easier to understand than the flashback yeah, yeah. ones. <laughs> yeah, I was just reading this one like a simpleton, I think. Simple literary simpleton. Um, one thing that I did notice, too, was um, on page 191. I'll just read this um, paragraph really quickly. Mm-hmm. He is coming for me, and when he does, he will see I'm not his anymore. I'm Acton's, and it's Acton I want to please. He expects it. With Joe, I pleased myself because he encouraged me to. With Joe, I worked the stick of the world, the power in my hand. So she associates sex with power, but then she's willing to give up the power that she has and give it all to Acton, who is the one who controls her. So I just found that really mm-hmm. interesting, especially when we think about in the, in the previous... Um, episode we talked about how there were um, several mentions of like um, the helplessness of women but are they really helpless and and don't they actually have the power to defend themselves and stuff like that so yeah it's an interesting take on sex and and the giving away of something that you feel you have power in Mm-hmm. I find very interesting. It was, yeah, I don't, I was going to say difficult, but not difficult because I didn't have like a strong emotional reaction, but seeing how she was thinking, knowing more now, because of course we know at the beginning that she's killed and that he kills her and, and all that stuff. It it was difficult to see the kind of this simple childlike wonder, childlike I don't know. It, it was just difficult in the sense of like, oh, she was as innocent, naive, and maybe even silly as you'd think. I, she, I don't know if she contained a profound font of wisdom that he was seeing or whatever comfort he was like. I just seeing this point of view is just kind of I don't know, humbling or something was might be the right word. Yeah, yeah. Anything else from this section? It was brief, but I yeah, I think I enjoyed it so much just because it got us out of the some of the muddied stuff from the past. Yeah, and uh, I just love the the host's reaction, like the annoyance of like, ugh, she's bleeding on my bed. Like, ugh. <laughs> Quite an inconvenience, oh yeah. God. But the party must have been yeah. bumping because it was commented upon, I think, in the first half that no one heard the gunshot happen. Like, he doesn't, yeah. no one seems to know. And then, yeah, she just kind of tumbles around bleeding. All right, let's move to chapter nine then. We open this chapter once again with some narrative musings. Narrative meaning this unnamed narrator who just wants to talk about the city. <laughs> uh, it's again mm-hmm. broad discussions about the city coming to life, music in the city. I, I'm not summarizing those parts because they're more meditative and poetic. They're, you can't, <laughs> there's not really any summarizing them. I'd have to go paragraph by paragraph. Anyway, after that, we're quickly whisked into the point of view of Felice, who's not Alice, right? Felice is her name? Or she's her own person? Yeah, Felice is the, is okay. the same age as Dorcas. They were school right, friends. buddies, yeah. I just, because yeah. Alice is mentioned again, but I know that's Dorcas's caregiver her aunt so anyway so Felice we're with Felice Uh, Dorcas's best friend who was there in the night of the murder um, she decides to visit Joe and Violet at first because she wants to see if her mother's ring is still there or that they have it her mother by the way stole this ring from a department store she thinks and kind of a little trick scam thing getting one over on some some white institutional wealth anyway so she suspects that Dorcas had it on her body and wants it 
Eventually, though, after visiting with them a couple times, it suggested, right? It was definitely not once. She takes a couple trips to see these people. Is that right? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a quite a few. Yeah. yeah. It was meant to be just one. <laughs> right. But eventually, Felice kind of falls into a casual friendship relationship with the both of them. And so they have things like dinner together. They end up discussing the murder directly. So at that point, it's pretty clear that everyone knows he did it, but no one seems to want to call the police or no one can prove it. Anyway, she reveals a lot of things at this moment. She reveals her negative opinions about Dorcas and that her like reservations about Dorcas, that she was selfish and closed off, that she used people and maybe wanted to be used in, in a bad way, that she was icy or cold. So she, you know, gives us a slightly more critical view of her. Then she reveals what happened to the party and critically Dorcas's last words, which are tell Joe that there's only one apple. And then she leaves during an awkward but sweet couples dance between Joe and Violet, <laughs> where they dance yeah. in the kitchen together. So you got to keep the romance alive, you know? If that helps, mm-hmm. I'm all for it. Yeah. So it's it, we finally arrive at the spoiler I alluded to earlier, so I'd prefer to start here if we can. Yeah. She really took those Eden words to heart then. <laughs> she really, his illusion was explicit and very clear, uh, I guess, mm-hmm. to her. So... Yeah. Okay, where do we start? Should we start with the fact that she dies, seemingly protecting him because she doesn't want to get help, and it's revealed had only a slight, like, shoulder wound, but then refused care. So as to hear Felice say it, she chose to die. I I think that's too extreme an interpretation for my compass, moral compass, but... I she definitely didn't react in a kind of let's place blame. I know why this happened. I let's get him. You know, and she clearly knows that he killed her. So right. there's there's the protection aspect. The one apple thing, uh, monogamy maybe that they're that their affair was kind of just wrong. I don't like. It's a complicated image, doubly complicated by the Bible use too. Yeah. Um, do you want to do you want to rescue this analysis? Because I think I'm just going to keep floundering. I'm not even really sure where to start unpacking it. <laughs> it's difficult because when uh, Joe's reaction to that, to being told that, is that he smiled. Sad smile. Yeah. Yeah, there was a sad smile. So, yeah, I don't. The the only way that I interpreted that at the time was the idea of um, of monogamy. It, to me, it was tied to the idea of monogamy. And, like, there's only one one person, I suppose, that you're supposed to be with. And I guess his is supposed to be Violet. Yeah, because that's the other thing. Right, that was where my head went, too. Or, like, once we had a taste of each other, it was either that or, like, well, once you had a taste of me or I of you, it was always going to end horribly because... Mm-hmm. you can only have the one and that it's maybe then kind of imper- an impermanence thing, you know, that it's like a sweet taste. And as he put it earlier, like you always have the memory of that first bite, but that it's, you yeah. know, it's not like that'll sustain you forever. That's not, having one apple is not exactly a sustaining, <laughs> right? not exactly a sustaining idea. And so there's that part of it too. There's of course then this is complicated by the fact that these were her chosen last words after she pretty clearly knew what she was... Nah, I don't know about clearly knew she was going to die, but, like, clearly was refusing care and didn't yeah. wasn't really that worried about it. So, I don't know. Is Was she the one apple? Yeah, yeah I, like, is... Yeah, I don't know. Any other thoughts on that image? No. I, I'm also still... 
kind of processing. Also, that. <laughs> like there's a sacrificial. So like with the, given all the plot machinations of that, there's a sacrificial element to it. Like she's sacrificing herself. If that's the reading, then if she's proclaiming only one apple, maybe she's saying like, because of my sacrifice, you and Violet now will be like there will never be another affair. Mm, you don't have mm-hmm. to worry about that. Like I'm, I free you from this burden. I absolve you. I, you know, I'm gonna die. It was just me. You had this one connection, this one affair, and now that the apple has been tasted, like you don't have to worry about this again or something. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know. That's another potential way to look at it too. It's more of a sacrifice kind of idea. Yeah. Any final? Any other readings on top of the twelve that we just presented? (laughs) (laughs) It was, I thought, really, you know, to to its credit, right? What is this doing? It's doing all the things I enjoy in a literary sense. It's both clear, but then not. It's clear in the moment because, to me, again, I read it immediately as like the monogamy. This is what our affair meant. We had this one taste of each other, and now I'm dead. But then, when you start to think about it more deeply, it kind of deepens and becomes more confused. Using. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's also thematically, again, I think pretty clear at first. It ties back to the, it explicitly ties back to what he talked about. But the more you kind of poke at it, the more you discover new shapes and sizes and angles. So I, it's doing the things I love. It's just, I don't know. I'm not also not sure where to sit with it either. Right, right. It's, it's difficult to just pin it on one thing. Yeah, and it was such a monumental, since it was kind of a mystery and such a privileged position of information, it's really a monumental revelation in the narrative. Probably the biggest moment of the story, honestly. (laughs) And so to have it be, it landed with a real uh, strong... I was going to say thud, but that's negative. It hit me hard when I read it. Like, I was like, oh, damn, that's okay. And then, of course, yeah, the more you think about it, it doesn't doesn't exactly reveal itself to you, the meaning. Right. (laughs) Yeah. It twists and turns. Um, I also uh, picked up on, uh, for me, it was on page 210, which is the last paragraph. Um, I I thought that there were a lot of interesting ideas in just this one paragraph. Um, So I'm just going to quickly read it for you. The way she said it, not like the me was some tough somebody or somebody she had put together for show. She's talking about Violet. But like, like somebody she favored and could count on. A secret somebody you didn't have to feel sorry for or have to fight for. Somebody who wouldn't have to steal a ring to get back at white people and then lie and say it was a present from them. I wanted the ring back not just because my mother asked me, have I found it yet? It's beautiful. But although it belongs to me, it's not mine. I love it, but there's a trick in it. And I have to agree to the trick to say it's mine. Reminds me of the tricky blonde kid living inside Mrs. Trace's heads. A uh, present taken from white folks given to me when I was too young to say no thank you. <clears throat> so a couple of things I found interesting here is like we get, hey, the blonde kid, that that's golden gray. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's okay. It was good to see that that comprehension fight I had earlier paid off. <laughs> um, and then the, the meaning behind the opal ring, because uh, Felice is... Like the story, her narrative here is is very much like we keep getting that opal ring reference back, right? Mm-hmm. Which ultimately is is buried with um, Dorcas, mm-hmm. and she doesn't mind. Um, yeah, she understands then, it exactly. And then Violet again, we we see Violet struggle with her identity, but here it seems like she's come to a certain acceptance about herself, and there's like a. a uh, a sense of peace with Violet that mm-hmm. Felice picks up on, which she really admires. Um, right. So there's like, 
discussions of identity, discussions of um, the, the race relations a little bit, and the looking for reliability in someone. Again, this could tie back to the idea of like motherhood. Um, can she rely on Violet? Like, why does she have this trust with Violet, and and can Violet rely on herself and stuff? So I just thought that that was yeah. And there's the an scene too. One, one nice little exchange at the end is when Violet does the last minute hair job for somebody and is you know is like reluctant and annoyed, but she does it, and so it shows her kind of. I feel like that was more of an interpersonal moment than Violet. She's so kind of aloof and alien in the first part of the story. Mm-hmm. I mean, she still does she still does hair and. Is, is working and everything so she has those human connections she has some interactions but there's that plus the dancing plus like it's just a little intimate it, it really does feel like she's a their kid you know those are the kinds right. of there's a there are little social exchanges there at the end there's a comfortability kind of a quickness to it almost that mm-hmm. feels yeah intimate like a child would be yeah yeah interesting and you're right I, to bring golden gray back in does make a lot of sense it's I I think there's an untapped, maybe to me undeveloped then in my in my analytical mind, part of this story about class because it comes up so much again with Felice at the end with her mother and feeling like she needs to get back at the world that's done her so wrong. Mm-hmm. And then there's also her father too who like clearly is very disdainful of white people and really wants to celebrate black success and everything and the, I it just didn't feel like those things were tugged at through the whole story. So right. I just, I don't know. In the end, it was just wasn't what I was thinking about. Even though I acknowledged that it was there, it was just like, this was not the deepest, um, I don't know what's a metaphor. This is not the deepest well to get the water from or something. Like I didn't, mm-hmm. anyway, it was not what I was thinking of, but it clearly came back around too. Yeah. Some class issues. I thought it was a nice touch, yeah, to come back around to it. But uh, yeah, I agree with you. I feel like... Some of those themes were, like, kind of present, but it definitely wasn't uh, developed a whole lot. Yeah, I need another chapter with him or something, another 30 pages, like, right away in the book or something. It just, yeah, too late for me, I think. Okay, let's wrap this up then. Final chapter? Final chapter. This entire chapter is told in the first-person perspective. Um, The narrator discusses how he or she feels isolated and like life, real living has been passed over. The narrator likened Wild's life choices, Wild as in um, Joe's mother, Wild's mm-hmm. life choices and cave home to a sense of peace and power. We also get some information about several characters' lives after the Dorcas incident. Um, Alice moved back to Springfield and continues to work as a seamstress. Felice still lives at home and shops for records while walking so slowly home from the butchery that the meat uh, always turns. Classic. Uh, Joe Joe gets a night job while Violet continues her hairdressing job, but hey, their relationship seems more settled and loving than before. Mm-hmm. That's some normalcy comfort- going. Right, yeah. They they nap together, they meander around town together, they share their personal stories with each other, finally. Mm-hmm. Um, Violet has also bought a new bird, who was depressed, until it heard some, hey, music. Yeah. Um, there's a final flashback of Violet and Joe pre-city life, when Violet, who was super tired, leaves the plow to clean up and take a nap, and Joe finds her napping and um, enjoys a sudden childish laugh she releases as she sleeps 
which is a very endearing moment for him. Yeah, it takes and, off his shoe, um, too. No one wants to wake yeah. up with shoes on. One of the worst exactly. feelings. One of the worst. Yeah. So, very caring scene. Very caring um, flashback. And then the narrator finishes the chapter with some musings on companionship, love, and intimacy. Yeah. Yeah, some broad, it's fitting enough to have it end in kind of a freestyling stream of consciousness narrative manner. It's <laughs> just kind of yeah. like, don't know who's talking now or why, or, you know, at least they're linking some ideas together, right? Right. <laughs> so I was exhausted at this point of, of the kind of jumpiness of this story. So I did kind of rush through this chapter. I, so I, to me, it's that final segment that is worthy of all the discussion. Like the rest is it has it ties up some narrative ends that are that are all well and good. And I think in what I liked about the story, those were the moments that mattered. But to end it how it does with that you know page and a half reflection, it seems like you have a critical reading of this though, because you think it's Dorcas. Could you talk me through this reading? Well, I'm not sure. I'm I'm kind of torn between whether it's Dorcas or Violet because last episode I talked about I thought that maybe it was Violet because when she's describing Vi- when the narrator when the first person narrator is uh says something about Violet she says she is me. That Violet is me. But I took that literally. Perhaps she actually meant that figuratively. And if I think of it as figuratively, the, the Violet that was her was the one who was... Um, oh, man. I don't remember. Um... Well, more the, of the innocent, I think. Well, there's the quotes at the end here. So what do you make of these final lines? I envy them their public love. I myself have only known it in secret, shared it in secret, and longed, all longed to show it, to be able to say out loud what they have no need to say at all, that I have loved only you, surrendered my whole self reckless to you and nobody else, that I want you to love me back and show it to me, that I love the way you hold me, how close you let me be to you. I like your fingers on and on, lifting, turning. I have watched your face for a long time now and missed your eyes when you went away for me talking to you and hearing you answer that's the kick and then she talks about how you got to be like in the present moment or something roughly like that so that's right i mean that does feel like she's describing joe and violet now because of how their story wraps up and how they seem to have a more healthy relationship at the end Mm mm-hmm so you think then it's a version of violet who's kind of outside her body what line supports that too i think i just missed that of, of Violet? Like a, yeah, it's like a multi-personality thing. I didn't pick up yeah. on this. We're, 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 yeah. yeah, read that, that part. That one was in um, the first f- first half of the book. We we very oh, briefly touched okay. on it. Yeah, That was confirmed or suspected? I truly just don't remember this reading. I think I'm just lost in the sauce. <laughs> <laughs> it's I so rem- funny. I just, I just opened my book and it opened immediately to that quote. Yeah, um, what's so it say? It's, it's on page ni- 95 through 96. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why it took so much wrestling to get me down, keep me down and out of that coffin where she was the heifer who took what was mine, what I chose, picked out and determined to have and hold on to. No, that Violet is not somebody walking around town up and down the streets wearing my skin and using my eyes. Shit, no, that Violet is me. The me that mm. hauled hay in Virginia and handled a four-mule team in the brace, blah, 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 blah. So all of this chapter was, not all the chapter, but most of the chapter was written in the first-person perspective, which was, the way that I read it, Violet's voice. One yeah. of the, the two people that was in that she saw herself as. Yeah. Yeah. That's... Okay, and then that, you're saying aligns with this final narrator, too? I... 
Yeah, it does feel like real work we ha- we'd have to do on this. <laughs> a- excavate <Yeah>. something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that like so the 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 quote that you um read where it seems like um talking to you and hearing you answer that's the kick. So that's all positive. That's showing the change in their relationship now. And then the idea of like she envies their public love. So they were never outwardly affectionate. Even that final flashback is like he's affectionate to her in the privacy mm-hmm. of their home when she's passed out in asleep. Right? We don't see them mm-hmm. in public being affectionate towards each other. Although Felice notices in her chapter that there's like sometimes Joe will like touch her on the shoulder lovingly when he's walking by her and stuff like that. So, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, it's I do think I'm at the limits of my kind of analytical desire for the narrative stuff, uh, mostly because not because it's not worthwhile, but mostly because I just think from here it would I would need, you know, the days of work to go into it. <laughs> I yeah. have to pour yeah. over old lines and like Yeah, I I think those are good perspectives though. Those are good. That's well put. Any other thoughts on the narrator or anything else really from the conclusion? To me, again, it almost felt the rest of it felt so tidy as to not be noteworthy. Then, of course, the final thing we're given is not, you know, some tidy narrative thing about like, here's what Joe ended up doing or here's Violet or what it was like. No, of course, it has to be this unnamed, unknowable narrator that is really complicated. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. So any any other final thoughts on anything really again? Nope, I'm good. Excellent. Okay, well, that wraps up our summary analysis combo of this book. Shall we end with some final segments, Amanda? We like to. Let's do it. It's in our nature. We've got two planned. We'll start with our classic and, I think, favorite critical assistants. We've each pulled some quotes and criticism of the work from outside of the work, obviously, and outside of us, critically. Uh, Get some uh, views from authors, critics, whatever. Could be from a video if we wanted. Um, Do you want to start with yours today? What'd you bring? Sure. Um, mine is from the New York Times. Classic. Um, I was going to use that one too and then didn't. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is like from the New York Times archive, I guess. Um, and it's ta- uh, titled The Clearest Eye and it's by Edna O'Brien. Um, so I pulled a couple of quotes. In Miss Morrison's robust language, we see the sidewalks, the curbstones, Egyptian beads, Kansas fried chicken, doors ajar to speakeasies, an invitation to the low-down hellfire induction of music and sex. In this and many audacious asides, the author conjures up worlds with complete authority. She captures and makes no secret of her anger at the injustices dealt to black women who were mothers, serving women, and corpse dressers, women who found refuge only in an angry church and an angry God and for whom pregnancy was worse than death. Um, So I found... I agreed with um, Morrison's language just being obviously like absolutely wonderful. She, the way that she can describe something is unique and refreshing every time. Um, But I thought it was interesting at the end here that women, um, that, that O'Brien says that women, uh, women's pregnancy was worse than death, which uh, was interesting because we've talked about how motherhood and the importance of like the mother parent or the mother uh, child relationship was as a theme mm-hmm. in the entire novel. 
Yeah, I do. I remember there was a line, I think maybe with the wild woman or it was, was it the wild woman or maybe before, like you said, where there was the affair with the slave. But anyway, there mm-hmm. was some line about that. I think maybe even I read the quote earlier about that in enra- the enraged father who, yeah, he, yeah. you know, hits her and basically says something like that. Like, well, you may as well be dead now or something to that right. extent. So, yeah, it's pretty brutal. Yeah. For, for her and then like Wild obviously didn't want to be a mother either but then yeah, we have yeah. um, then we have these other characters who are hungry for a mm-hmm. mothering relationship yeah yeah. Um, so I found that interesting um, then uh, O'Brien continues with um, in sharp compassionate vignettes Plucked from different episodes of their lives, the author portrays people who are together simply because they were put down together. People tricked for a while into believing that life would serve them, powerless to change their fate. Joe with a faithless wild woman for a mother, a woman he seeks in caves and rock faces. Um, And then just uh, Violet unable to repress the seams of erotic memory, remembering the bed with one leg propped on a dictionary. And Dorcas, foxy, provocative, believing sex to be her trump card, which for a few months it was. These are people enthralled, then deceived by the music the world makes. Hmm. So a lot to unpack in that one. Um, But I'll start with the easy one, which is, I didn't even, when I was reading it, I didn't think of it as vignettes. Yeah, you definitely could read it that way. The pr- The trouble is that the chapters do not align. And then also right. the narrator interjects always in a very, mm-hmm. you know, in a way that makes everything confusing. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. un- it's unlike other vignette based stories I've read because those all have clear titles and have, and then they stick to within themselves. <laughs> they don't expand and burst outside their own conf- confines. So yeah. this is like, yeah, it is that, but also it's way messier though. Mm-hmm. Some are yeah. contained to one character, some are not. Some have, like, seemingly multiple narrators, maybe? Uh, yeah, so yeah. this is that plus a lot of complication, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. I I was like, okay, well, that's that's a, an interesting way to read that. Um, and I also thought it was interesting that the theme that she seemed to, um, that the author seemed to put together was that... Uh, was the idea of like powerlessness, um, mm-hmm. especially in in like fate? I I believe that for Joe because Violet chose him. He had a a wild woman for a mother. Like he just kind of like drifted through life until he chose Dorcas. Mm-hmm. Um, but then with with Violet, I was like, eh, I don't know. And like with Dorcas, she she definitely could have. Uh, she had like I, I we. I read earlier that she had power. She felt powerful right, right. with with Joe. And then she gave that up and gave that power to Acton. Um, so I just, I, I found that interesting that that's the theme that she's kind of interweaving these three characters into. Yeah. Dorcas, Foxy provocative. Interesting. Her friend goes out of the way to talk about how she wasn't, Something about her was wrongly constructed. Like, her, she had a beauty, but it was strange. But then again, she was trying to exercise that power. That's true. That's actually... That description makes sense. I, yeah, yeah, deceived by the the music the world makes. I don't know. I, I'm not sure if that feels like Violet to me. I'm not sure if she's enthralled by anything. Like yeah. Like, she seems... Yeah. 
I, I know she recalls that the erotic memory and kind of those the things from her past, but she feels like, and especially contrasted against the other characters in the story and what we get from her, it feels like she is a much more passive entity. I mean, she ends up taking agency. The thing we see her take agency the most over is her relationship with Alice after, you know, trying to like befriend the caretaker of her husband's. Uh, what's the term for that? A, f- a fair person, <laughs> mistress. I was, mistress. That feels a little yeah. formal or something. <laughs> anyway, so it's I. Yeah, I don't know. I, I. Yeah, I'd have to unpack that for longer and think on it more. But I, that quote for yeah. Violet does not quite feel right. I think there's a real case for Joe and Dorcas. You could any affair you could say is people being enthralled by the music the world makes. You know the poetry of that idea. But yeah, I don't yeah. know about Violet. Yeah, I agree. She feels stagnant to me in a very purposeful way. Yeah, we see her not doing much changing and, in fact, kind of stuck, physically stuck in a lot of ways, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because she, like, sits down in the middle of the road at one point. But, yeah, I agree. Um, the final thing that I will point out that O'Brien says is, do I miss something? Yes. I miss the emotional nexus, the moment shorn of all artifice that brings us headlong into the deepest recesses of feeling, moments such as when poor, crazed Anna Karenina, observing the bolts and irons of the oncoming train, asks God to forgive her. I say this because at one point in the novel, when Violet and Alice are ruminating, Alice muses on her own woes, on the treachery done to her by another woman, on the blood punishment she meted out on the husband long since in his grave. Um, and she says, you don't know what loss is. I have a sense of being told this. I do not feel it. My pity is withheld. It is as if Miss Morrison, bedazzled by her own virtuosity, a virtuosity that serves her and us in contemporary fiction very well, hesitates to bring us to the last frontier, to a predicament that is both physical and metaphysical, and which in certain fictions, by an eerie transmission, becomes our very own existence. Such alchemy does not occur here. What remains are the bold, arresting strokes of a poster and not the cold astonishment of a painting. Um, So essentially what O'Brien is saying is that she doesn't have that emotional connection to some of the characters that she would have liked. Um, And she praises Morrison for her ability to write and her style and everything like that. Mm -hmm. But that it is the... It's the empathy that seems to be like the the ability to create empathy in the reader, or at least in this reader, and um, and that's why she likens it to the bro, uh, bold strokes of a poster, but not the astonishment of a painting. Um, yeah, and I, I yeah. would have to agree. No, I I think the effect is really well articulated, and I for sure I don't know the Anna Karenina reference because I've never read that, but I I think I get the point of that. Um, yeah. depth of a journey, you know, really feeling like you've been with a character instead of brief, you know, teases or hints at things or whatever. And it does, I don't know, it's weird because Morrison almost never holds back. I'm not sure what, like, scene in this book could have been explored more deeply. Like, maybe some of, there's not really any sex in the book. That was, like, the yeah. maybe the one thing <laughs> that that was not explored in, in a sense. But I do think in, in the um, connective frontier sense, it is true that I didn't, I didn't feel a strong emotional connection to this one. It did feel kind of academic. The image at the end, I'd have to think about a lot longer too, but it's, I don't know, in a sense, the words are so well chosen 
But sometimes I do think looking at like the technicalities of a real piece of fine art in front of you does feel kind of academic to me anyway. Like I don't, I don't know if the arresting astonishment thing, I don't know if painting would be the best metaphor for me, but I think maybe my reactions to, to fine arts are, can be different than this person clearly has like a very strong connection to those things. So I think the words are perfectly chosen. I don't know if the example is for me, but I'm just like, okay, I think I, yeah, I get, I get the idea of like an original versus a replica versus a recreate. Like it's how it, that can lose things and it, it takes the texture away. It strips the, it strips the kind of potency away in a sense, but, but leaves it something interesting. It's just like, not the, not the hammer hit of the original or something. Yeah. I get the idea. Yeah. It's yeah, it's really well put. I too didn't leave this book feeling much, but I left it thinking a lot. So I, I take that where I can get it. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. Yeah. A couple quotes I pulled from the LA review of books, which has become kind of a go-to for me. One of the, one of the ones in our stable. Also, that was probably the best written thing we've gotten from the times. So just as a quick note, <laughs> that was, yeah, that was like actually interesting criticism instead of, um, just a summary of a book. <laughs> so, yeah. Written yeah. in the nineties. So yeah, I guess we've, we've fallen a long way down, I suppose. We'll try not to be part of that effort. Anyway, this is from uh, a kind of write-up article called Tony Morrison's Big Bang by Clifford Thompson. Um, to be clear, this article is about all of her novels. He was trying to write kind of a coherent thesis about all of them and her worldview. So I only pulled a couple of quotes and like, it's not all about this book at all, but it's in there. So plenty. That brings me back to Morrison's, Tony Morrison's novels. The near, is it non-agenarian? What is that? Non-agenarian. Isn't it like a, it's an age term, right? Yeah, it's like a, you're not. Not Oh, no, it means you're 90 to 99 years old. Oh. I didn't even know there was a term for that. I just saw that I saw like a root in there and I was like, okay, that's probably an age thing. I feel like I've seen yeah. something Aryan with, um. With that H. makes sense because octanogen. Octo, oct- yeah. Octa, yeah. <laughs> anyway, Nanagenarian has said more than once that she writes about and for black people, and if others respond to her books, great. Her novels are concerned largely with the past, with communities, and with characters, often painful memories, the rehashing of which makes up so much of their present lives that the present and the past are difficult to distinguish if, in fact, they are different to begin with. Together, the books constitute something like a black collective memory, a fictional one, of course, but one that holds up to mere to mirror its real-life counterpart. And because Morrison is a black person addressing other blacks, fellow sharers of this memory, she does not even explain seminal past events, at least not initially, and seemingly not on purpose. Those events are glimpsed at and referred to via fragments, which make sense only when they are repeated and join other fragments in that carefully, exquisitely disordered way of Morrison's that does not so much form a narrative as reveal an eternal happening, a past that is one with the present. So if you like this book... Uh, that paragraph would be why <laughs> it's about the best clearly articulated summation of her style that I could have happened upon. I, I think I only read two articles and then picked this one to, to pull from. And it does feel like having, I've only read three of her books and we've done two of them together. And then one of them was in college. And it does feel like this is truly like what, this is the project she was on. This, this person puts it really well and really clearly that it's it's a mess of memory it's entanglements from other times your past never escapes you you're haunted obviously there's all the quotes in there about for for the black american experience and speaking to that experience that audience therefore some things don't get addressed like i think this book was felt much less 
enmeshed in racial issues, but then again, it's never not, <laughs> right? Every character has that complication. Every character, you know, he's, he was in sharecropping debt, Joe was. Violet's family was descendants of slaves and that, and then there's, so it's like, it's never gone. There's race riots. Like it's, it, it permeates the work. It, you know, she wrote in that community, there's no question. But then of course, like it doesn't feel like that other book, The Bluest Eye, to be about that almost explicitly. Um, yeah, just a really well put quote. And I think, I mean, you could read this and think that sounds maybe exhausting or too generous or like she's, you know, she's a great author, but who did she really accomplish all that or, or whatever, whatever criticism. But to me, it feels true. I was like, okay, that is, that explains it well. It also explains why it's kind of, a, I thought this book was kind of messy and just didn't, didn't click all the way for me, but that's because of her style and the things she sets out as ex- stylistic expectations. Yeah, when um, so the the latter half of this quote um, about the the fragmentation and how the present and the past are actually just like continuations of each other, I I thought of um, the bluest eye, and I was like, bluest eye even which which you and I read together as well also is kind of like fragmented, and it it is it plays with the ideas of the past and how oh, yeah. how the present is so entangled with that. Um, and how it seems like you just can't escape that. And I feel like though, that was like way, way more ordered than this novel was as far as like, totally kind of, yeah, I just, uh, the organization here was just like really jarring. I think critically that book, when it would start a new chapter or section did not leave the character. And I think that in my brain makes literally all the difference. Like I just can't, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the whole notion of having in mid, some chapters are wholly dedicated to characters and then others jump four times. Like it just, it's a lot to keep up with. And I just, yeah, I I didn't want to do it a disservice. I ended up rereading, like I said, chunks of this book more than usual. Um, but it's it was more to manage for sure. A couple other brief quotes. These are about jazz. Again, he analyzes a lot all the novels in different ways. But this one, a couple things about jazz. The management of anger is an art. Properly channeled, it can create art. A character in jazz considers the complicated anger in the black American music of the title, how it contains something hostile that disguised itself as flourish and roaring seduction. That something hostile has to be contained or it will contain you. The novel's mysterious narrator muses about women who think they want to rest but don't because, quote, what is waiting for them in a suddenly idle moment is the seep of rage. This rage is indeed felt perhaps most strongly by women, those chief bearers of suffering in this black american universe and it is an element of survival one that threatens yet also strengthens their sisterhood jazz represents just one example though the most surprising one of a contentious but unbreakable bond between women violet whose husband joe trace has killed his young lover befriends alice the dead girl's mother women in morrison's universe understand that they need one another regardless of what they do to one another it's definitely a perspective i think it was i thought it was too bad that the anger music because I think that section was a little more complicated than he was letting on, especially like the self-loathing she seems to have, like the the yeah. kind of racial complications of that. That I think that that section is maybe a slight bit more uh, complicated than than his analysis let, lets on. And then of mm-hmm. course to pick up on the sisterhood angle, um, his article was kind of broken down by these different categories or terms that he wanted to analyze. And sisterhood was one of them. It's in there. I again maybe not the first thing I would have thought about discussing with this book. But it's definitely an intriguing part of the story. I just, again, regret that we abandoned it in the second half for other threads of history that I just didn't 
it felt like overly ambitious or something because I, I in the first half I remember discussing this with you their interaction their unlikely connection their kind of staring at each other their the nervousness of that the tension I was like I wanted more of that and then it never comes up again <laughs> it's like just abandoned yeah. so yeah it's it was intriguing but I was when that when this analysis came up and that that idea that theme came up it was another thing where I was thought like well yeah but the book didn't see it through it was like it addressed mm-hmm. it but it didn't does that make sense? It just kind of felt abandoned. Yeah, yeah. The, that was an interesting um, relationship between the two, and they definitely had relied on each other for different things. They needed each other for different things. Um, what I found uh, reading reading this quote is I immediately thought of Wild, um, Joe's mother, mm-hmm. and how she wants nobody in her life Mm -hmm. except for maybe golden gray we're not even 100 percent sure of that or hunter hunter Um, or hunters hunt whatever (laughs) yeah well she doesn't even right she's not even interested in him she doesn't want her kid she doesn't she lives in a cave by herself like right um so women in morrison's universe understand that they need one another regardless of what they do to one another wild doesn't need anybody and in fact she's probably based on the the description of her cave and like her freedoms and her connection to nature she's actually the most positively portrayed or one of the most possibly portrayed in yeah Yeah. in the the novel and she has no connections to people there's so i don't know that this would hold up there's another sisterhood though which would be dorcas and her friend because they also it's revealed only after that felice Felice, has such kind of eh, disdain's too harsh but she clearly has some some negativity for for dorcas then again she like protects her she keeps their affair secret even though she knows about it and doesn't like Mm -hmm. she wants that to be a thing that dorcas can have so there there is another woman to woman relationship of like some complicated motives and some emotional you know complexity or something so I think yeah I I think it's in the book it just it did remind me the quote because to see this in an article analyzing so many novels and you know kind of quickly it's not like a 10,000 word article it's like you know who knows what length but definitely shorter and so he's trying to work with all the stories and trying to make these cross cross book connections but to see that part of jazz plucked out to be like that's the thing from jazz we can we can glean or we should think about i was just kind of like huh it felt i was almost like disappointed to be reminded of it (laughs) where it was like yeah their connection in the first half was fascinating and then it's gone so i was i guess i just wanted something for to further happen or to deepen that or add some other nuance to it see Mm -hmm. what see what else comes out of it but um anyway yeah i think it's in there it's just maybe wouldn't have been the first thing i thought of with jazz yeah yeah. Yeah. Any final thoughts on those quotes? Those are the only ones I pulled. A couple brief ones, mostly again just because it's that article was pretty extensive, and but I thought those parts of jazz are worth picking at. Yeah. But a good summary of her style too at the start. So it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's conclude then with our final segment, always in part two book clubs, which is the lightly literary Hall of Fame. We will now each induct one thing from this novel into the Hall of Fame. It can be as specific as we like, just something that we think years from now we'll remember about the book something to celebrate and enjoy about it we're not hard up for options because it's tony morrison so we can you can pick from a lot of different things what are you going to induct this week um i would induct her for having the most concise yet revealing dialogue interesting any any interactions jump out i agree 
Um, I think I, th- I love the interchanges between um, Alice and Violet. Um, the, their entire conversations with each other, I, I was just like fascinated the whole time. Yeah, because they have such biting remarks, but they're it, it's like one-liners constantly, right? But but it reveals so much about their personalities and about their relationship and and their growing trust of each other but the initial distrust was like really great yeah and and wonderfully realized in the dialogue some true coldness too i was thinking of the exchange Mm -hmm. when we see because we don't see dorcas and joe talk that much so when they had that Mm -hmm. adam conversation and she wants to leave him because i thought that stuff too was you see her kind of clippy annoyance you see his patience and i don't know even nurturing maybe instinct in it too yeah Mm -hmm. i think yeah her dialogue is always great in this book is so meditative and very dense so it's like in the first half i know i said this too but they do feel like little life rafts when you see a page of dialogue (laughs) where you're like okay (laughs) i think i think i can deal with one more meditative paragraph about the city in the springtime you know bringing new life forth and all that if i can just let's get to you know a a story moment (laughs) i'm gonna induct into the hall of fame uh, this is specific because i'm not inducting joe who i think maybe i could just induct joe but i think his sad old man musings this is not a character where it's weird to say because in the history of literature it's like mostly sad old men you know 99 (laughs) percent uh no Mm -hmm. that's that's a joke but maybe has some truth in it but i do think he (laughs) just stood out to me as kind of like i said i don't think any there's any moral excuses offered or even required but I think his he was the most coherent and clear character. Obviously, Violet has some kind of mental complications going on, so it was harder to like latch onto her. But he just had such a clear, not tragic motivation or tragic backstory. But I I, I thought the journey with him was really well articulated. And in contrast to some of the more dense, difficult parts of this book to understand, I just thought it was so understandable. Again, if not justifiable, which is a to me a different, very different question. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah, his um his musings were definitely more um clear-headed and concise because we also get the musings of the first person narrator but they were just like because I was wondering the entire time who that narrator was it was I couldn't I couldn't really like get behind some of those interjections the the yeah, the insights that the narrator It's not even clear if it's one person. Like, you really... Yeah. Again, you would need to <laughs> unpack it. You'd need full-on, give me my eight-page paper mode to, like... I would need to see something like that to make a case. Like, I truly don't even know if it's one person. There's probably yeah. tons of thematic connections that we skipped over. Maybe I diminished or something that are obvious, but it's just... Yeah, it's messy enough to not be that clear to me, so... Yeah. Yeah, and I I think his old man musings, you know, there's some simple ideas in there. I don't think it's the most complex thing, but it's just, again, it was all just enough from from him to keep me engaged, you know, the apple idea. Just wants a bite. (laughs) (laughs) Just wants a bite. Just wants to wander the city, you know, being a stalker and doing horrible things. That's why I'm not inducting him. I don't think, I think morally I'm like, gotta say, but I'm just, it, it's, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was his old man musings to me, that very specific yearning category of kind of, and he was, he was in the end, um, not, not a peaceful character given what he did, but I think his kind of philosophy or his attitude personality was kind of like an approachable kind old man 
Oh, old. Right. Man. Fifty. We shouldn't pretend like that's ancient or something. It's it's like not that old. It's old, but anyway. All right. Any final thoughts on jazz by Toni Morrison? Nope. Yeah, an intriguing one. I think uh, almost more interesting to discuss than Bluest Eye. Um, our conversation not as uh, not as uh, orgasmic, but still really worthwhile. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not like head over heels for the book, but also it's. Yeah, it showed all the good qualities for writing, too. So, Right. We'll get to that in the recommendation. Um, thanks, as always, listeners, for sticking with us through the full episode. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and hope you join us soon. Um, we have been, as I mentioned, the Lightly Literary Podcast. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at that name, so at the Lightly Literary Podcast, all one word. Any podcast platform you found us on, leave a rating and a review. Tell your friends and family. We appreciate all that stuff. Any word of mouth helps. As I mentioned, we have other books coming up, which Amanda will tell you about. The things we'll be reading in order. Go for it, Amanda. Uh, World of Wonders in Praise of Fireflies, Whale Sharks, and Other Astonishments, and that's by Amy Nizuku Matatil. Then we have Slouching Toward Bethlehem, which is by Joan Didion, and a comedy, huh? Mash by Richard Hooker. It has the <laughs> reputation. I've never seen the show, right. but I know it's supposed to be a bit funny, right? Korean War. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. It, even if you've. Um, both the movie and the TV show, it was, it was comedy-based. The okay. movie, perhaps more like dry humor, I suppose. <laughs> but, okay. I'm intrigued yeah. then. We have two, and that's two non-fictions in a row, too. World of Wonders is kind of observations of nature, and then Slashing Toward the Bethlehem is essays. So, mm-hmm. got some non-fiction to break this up, pairing them together. And then, yeah, MASH should be a fun ride, too. We haven't, have we done a war narrative in a long time, if ever? No, not, I mean, like, the closest thing would be, like, uh... Oh, the um, Incal. Fucking war as hell in the Incal. Oh. It's, it's war all over the place. <laughs> it's like galactic war. War of the universe. <laughs> Don't, like, isn't it at some point they're just casually, like, 8 billion people will die now. <laughs> it's just yeah, kind of like, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, brutal. Oh, um, man. Yeah, yeah. wild oh, stuff. That yeah, that's fun. That, that one's in the feed, as always. Our, our old books will be in the feed forever, so go back, dig through the archives, find something new and interesting to read. As always, folks, we thank you for listening, and of course, until next time, we'll see you between the pages. Bye.